so many of us who love Shakespeare's work want to get inside his head. Most biographers try the direct route. But what if there was another way? What if you tried to understand Shakespeare by looking at the people all around him? From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. Geoffrey Marsh is an historian of the City of London. He also runs the Theatre and Performing Arts Department of the Victoria and Albert Museum. These two areas of specialty serve him well in a new exercise designed to get to know not Shakespeare himself, but the people around him. By that, I don't mean Shakespeare's family or Shakespeare's acting troupe. Jeff has a new book called Living with Shakespeare. In it, he's focused in on one of the places Shakespeare is thought to have lived, a little neighborhood in London called St. Helens. There is documentary evidence that suggests strongly that Shakespeare lived in a house in St. Helens during an early part of his career. While this approach may or may not bring us closer to the life of William Shakespeare, it does bring us some remarkable characters and the world they, and likely Shakespeare, once inhabited. Jeff joined us from his home in London to talk about all of this for a podcast we call We'll Wander Through the Streets and Note the Qualities of People. Jeffrey Marsh is interviewed by Barbara Bogave. We did a podcast a few weeks ago with the founder of the Lost Plays database, and he is big on this idea of uh, negative space, which is, he means that what the plays we don't know about can tell us uh, about what we think we know. And in your story, as I read your book, it seems like the negative space is Shakespeare, and What you do is you have all these details about James Burbage and about doctors who lived in St. Helens, who we know about, and you use them to tell a story about Shakespeare. So is that what you find you do in your work as you learn more about everything around Shakespeare? It creates an outline of this playwright that we don't know. Yes, I guess that was the basic idea behind it because obviously Shakespeare didn't leave any diaries or any notes. And what intrigued me was that In 1598, there's this record of him paying a tax, or in fact, not paying a tax, um, but recording the amount he should have paid. And on either side of his name in the list for the parish of St. Helens, there were a whole series of names. And I was looking at them, I wondered, well, who are all these people? And in fact, this tax record was found, I think, in the 1840s. But no one's ever really analysed the names above and below Shakespeare's name in it. And um, I was very fortunate because... St. Helens was actually a a nunnery before the dissolution, and it was purchased by the Guild of Leather Sellers. That's one of the medieval city guilds. And the leather sellers, uh, like many of the medieval guilds in London, still survives. And most remarkably, they still own the land that they bought in 1542. And in their archives, they have a complete uh, record of their rent rolls going back to that period. So what it allows one to do is to trace many of the people who lived around where Shakespeare was living. And uh, they're a very interesting cast of characters, except these aren't made-up people. They're real people with real jobs, uh, real relations. Well, that is so wild, and it really highlights 
the challenge of writing a backstory for someone like Shakespeare, because it's not like writing the history or the biography of Dwight Eisenhower, who gave speeches and interviews and wrote memos and letters. I mean, you make no secret about how speculative an exercise this is when it comes to Shakespeare. So what do you want the reader to come away with from your work? Answers or, or speculating or more questions? I th- I don't think it's that speculative because these were real people where there's real records and we know who they married and when they moved in and where they moved out. What we don't know, of course, is whether Shakespeare ever spoke to them. I live in a street and I know some of my neighbours, but some of them I've never spoken to. But I think what's critical is that Shakespeare was uh, living 50 yards of the parish church and everybody had to go to parish church on Sunday. So at some basic level, Shakespeare must have interacted with these people, if only seeing them once a week. And I think that um, what I've tried to avoid is speculation about their relationships, because we simply don't know. But what I think is factual underneath it is that these were a remarkable group of people There were members of parliament, there were leading doctors, and um, Shakespeare was living in in actually a very, very upmarket parish and was almost certainly living next door to um, one of the Lord Mayors of London. So this is not someone who's squirrelled away in a back street in the city. This is someone confident enough that he wants to be in that sort of area. Well, let's step back for a second. Let me ask you a very basic question. What evidence do you have that Shakespeare lived there? Well, that's a, that's a very good question. So what survives is a tax roll for the parish. It dates to the 1st of October, uh, 1598. And it was what was called a lay subsidy. This was a tax that was levied on the wealthier members of society uh, across the country, essentially to pay for extra costs that the royal, um, the queen would have had to pay, probably in this case, for the wars that were going on in Ireland. Uh, Elizabethan finances were pretty hand-to-mouth. You know, the Queen pretty much spent what came in. So things like wars had to be paid by other means. So that's what the subsidy uh, was. So it was done uh, in London by things called wards, which would be five or six parishes. And in that, in, within each parish, uh, the richer people in the parish, a couple of them, would be put in charge of drawing up a list of everybody in the parish and assessing them about what they ought to pay. And so if you had less than £3, you didn't have to pay. But if you were above £3, you did. And, and Shakespeare was valued at £5, which was um, demonstrates that he was in the top 25% of maybe 100, 120 households. And that document is in the National Archives in London, and you can go and see it if you, if you want to. They'll let you take it out and have a look at it. Uh, so did you know about this document when you started the project, or, or did you just happen <laughs> upon it? Well, it, 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 it came about because the site of the theatre, which is in Shoreditch, about 20 minutes walk away, was discovered about 10 years ago. And the Victorian Albert Museum have been helping the trusts that have taken over that site to make it publicly available, hopefully open sometime when COVID is finished. And so that was built by Burbage in 1576. And it was pulled down in 1598 and the timbers taken to build the globe on the South Bank. And that's where Shakespeare would have worked for the last four years of existence from about 1594 onwards. So that sort of got me interested in what Shakespeare was doing at that time. So this is the period before the Globe Theatre, before the great tragedies, but the period when he was writing Romeo and Juliet, uh, Midsummer's Night Dream, etc. Um, and that's what we got me interested in. And that's what we made me look at this document, because it's one of the very few references to Shakespeare. And if you look in most biographies of Shakespeare, it sort of says, 
1598, Shakespeare seems to have been living in St. Helens, full stop. And I thought, that's kind of curious. And that's what got me interested in looking at the document initially. And then from that, working out and realising that these people who are listed above and below him were real people with real uh, lives and, and relationships. And also that the list actually appears to be the list in which houses were the layout of the houses in the parish. So that by looking at the people above and below him, it indicates that people probably were living on either side of him. And just so people can picture it, this neighborhood, most people might know because it's, uh, even Americans, because it's got these significant landmarks, the gherkin and the cheese grater. And you (laughs) you started to describe it a little earlier, but let's talk about that. What was it like when Shakespeare likely lived there? First of all, this parish was tiny. It was seven acres, so about twice the size of Trafalgar Square. I mean, for the sort of reference. These parishes were tiny. And the the anchor of the parish was the parish church. And it's been restored. And apart from Holy Trinity in Stratford, it's actually the largest physical artefact that survives um, associated with Shakespeare. So you can actually walk into the building and look at the space that he would have known. You said earlier the mayor lived there. So was it a really upscale neighborhood? What was the neighborhood like? Upscale, poor, completely mixed, like crazy mixed like Manhattan? Um, Probably not that. I mean, for those that know London, I think the area that I would associate it with is Notting Hill. It had lots of wealthy merchants and bankers. uh, Well, not bankers, but but, but, but money lenders, but also a lot of creatives. So Thomas Morley, the composer and music publisher, lived probably within a a matter of yards. And interestingly enough, um, there was also a cluster of doctors there. Not that many doctors in the city of London, maybe 20 or 30. And certainly three of them were living in this parish. Yeah, and I'd love to think that this is such a small neighbourhood that Shakespeare would brush up against everyone, really. But on the other hand, we don't really know why Shakespeare came to live there. But but you do make the case that he might have chosen it because it was quiet and he could be a quiet writer. Yeah, I mean, for anybody who writes... You know, Shakespeare, of course, we know what he wrote, but of course, we, what we don't know is how much he ended up in the waste paper bin. Most writers like going somewhere reasonably quiet. And what's interesting is two of the streets in St. Helens were dead ends and therefore wouldn't have carts and horses and things travelling through them. And the place it seems most likely that Shakespeare was living was between those two roads. And in fact, Little St. Helens is still owned by the leather sellers and is actually a private road. And if you go there today, there's a man at the end of the road uh, who will stop you walking down it unless you have business there. So it, it's not certain, but I think it's it, it's pretty likely that that was one of the reasons. And also just for security. I mean, are you speaking from personal experience as, as a writer? I mean, you've written this book or, or well, do you, do you, are your friends writers <laughs> that you... Assume they'd want a quiet neighbourhood? I, 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 uh, I, I live for quite a long period with the daughter of quite a famous writer who specifically lived in an area where he hated the local residents so that he didn't have to talk to any of them so he could do nothing but write. Oh, let's name um, names. Who is this? <laughs> no, 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 no. I think oh. I ought to. Maybe very unpopular. But I mean, the thing, of course, is that, you know, Shakespeare wasn't just writing. He was having to write in, in the time that he had separate from working as an actor, I, I, you know, if you actually look at what his day or his week or his year must have been in those uh, in the 1590s, uh, I think his time was pretty precious to him. I mean, uh, if you look at his kind of output over that period, that probably in an average evening, he was having to write 20 lines on average. 
the amount of time you need to do that is considerable, even someone as talented as uh, Shakespeare. Um, some years ago, you may know that I did an exhibition about David Bowie at the at the Victorian Albert Museum, which travelled around the world, came to Chicago. And, you know, people have this idea of pop stars sort of lazing around by the swimming pool, drinking kind of bottles of champagne. But between uh, 1974 and 2003, David Bowie, on average, sang once every 17 days. I mean, that is a remarkable output for anybody. And, you know, alongside that, he was doing films and making records and all the rest of it. I mean, he was a workaholic. Now, I'm not quite suggesting that Shakespeare was a workaholic on, on that level, but given that he was certainly acting during this period, that would have taken up most of his days and uh, even assuming, you know, there were periods when the theatres were closed and all the rest of it, he had to basically write in his spare time, if I can put it that way. And, you know, to turn out a couple of plays a year, year in, year out, is no mean feat. And of course, the thing we don't know is how much of the time he was helping other people with plays or perhaps coming up with storylines, which then went to other people and all the rest of it. And I, and, um, I think St Helens provided him, uh, potentially, with the neighbourhood where he would get on with work, but also it had the right social status for someone who at this time um, was just about to buy his house in Stratford and was also working to get back, uh, to get his coat of arms and kind of re-establish his family's reputation. Well, another important thing about St. Helens is that it was really close to where Shakespeare worked at the the, the theatre, as it was called, James Burbage's Theatre. And you have this wonderful material about James Burbage. Uh, And you point out in your book, which has a lot of fabulous material about James Burbage, um, here's a quote, that at the start of every innovation in the leisure sector, there's always an individual who believes there's a gap in the market that only his or her own particular idea can fill. So what was it about Burbage that he grasped this particular opportunity to start a theater? Because as you point out, he was a, he was a joiner or carpenter by trade until he was forty years old. That, that's a very interesting question, and to be honest, I don't know the answer. I mean, what fascinates me about Burbage is he cracked the basis of the entire modern entertainment industry. In that, prior to the creation of the theatre, the first theatre in London since well since the Roman period, obviously there was theatre. It was done in inns. It was done in probably in the open air. It was done in guild halls uh, up and down the country. But these were generally places where the money didn't come from an entrance fee. They, you know, someone would pay for it, the, the, the local council, or someone presumably went around with a hat in cases and all the rest of it. Burbage, or um, maybe it was other people with him, cracked what is the basis of all mass entertainment, which is you basically get pay, people to pay up front. So he put a paywall, I suppose we call it nowadays, by building the theatre. He may not have been the first because obviously there were bear baiting rings and those sort of things. But he was certainly the first person to do it with a a specific uh, built structure, the theatre up in Shoreditch. And I do think that side of his life has been somewhat slightly underestimated. And of course, the interesting thing is that um, the Curtain Theatre, which seems to have been perhaps opened in 1577, a year later, to get the timbers for a theatre, you'd have to pre-order them. So it's quite likely that within literally a few months of the theatre opening, somebody else had said, this is a great financial model, I'm going to build one a few hundred yards away. And I think, again, because the theatre was involved in such terrible financial shenanigans, people have slightly ignored the fact that the what was clear 
right from the start was that this is a financial business model which would work. And of course, what it guaranteed was that he'd have a good income and eventually that he could pay off his debts if he could hang on to his asset. Which he did. Which he did. Amazingly. So much so that um, in uh, 1596, he paid £600, which is a huge sum of money, for to acquire the Blackfriars uh, building. Well, you paint him and his family as such a colorful bunch. And I and I want you to read um, a little bit from the book. It's just so great. Uh, it's like you can't make this stuff up. Uh, yeah, yeah. Just just to be clear, I didn't write this. This is from a a, a legal account. Um, exactly. Uh, of, of a court case. Um, and it's and also could you it's a legal account of a court case and could you explain who everybody is and what their relationship to each other is and what exactly uh, uh, they're fighting about before you read uh, this? Okay, so James Burbage, um, who built the theatre, did it with his uh, brother-in-law, who put in the money basically, as far as we can tell. But there was no legal agreement, and so basically they fell out with each other. They had to mortgage the theatre, and the court case, in fact, went on for decades, well after, in fact, all the people involved in it had died. And his, uh, and his brother-in-law's name is Brain, and his, yeah, that, it, and his yeah. wife's name is Margaret Brain. That's right. Yeah. So um, I'll just read this now. So, so um, James Burbage's wife was called Ellen, and, and then the wife of the said James and their youngest son, called Richard Burbage, fell upon the said Miles and beat him and drove both him and the complainant, Margaret Brain, away saying that if they did tarry to hear the play, as others did, they should, but to gather none of the money that was given to go upon the galleries. Furthermore, the said James Burbage's wife charged them to go out of the ground, or else she would make her son break their knave's head, and so hotly railed at them. And then the said James Burbage, her husband, looking out at a window upon them, called the complainant, Margaret Brain, a murdering whore. So that gives you some idea of the... Um, of the tempers that were involved. And I think, actually, this was due to the fact that people knew that there was money to be made out of it. And, in fact, um, later in the, on in the book, there's also a description of Francis Langley turning up at the boar's head, uh, basically with a gang of thugs, and attacking the, the, the owners there. And there's a great description in the court case of them throwing daggers at them. So this is the sort of underbet... <laughs> this is the mess. under. I mean, uh, yeah, you can the, really imagine is, Shakespeare hearing all this and writing down because knaves and rascals and scoundrels comes up and, you know... Whore sons and murdering yeah. whore. But I think I think what's lying underneath this, and we all know um, dodgy people who, who operate in the cash economy, which of course these theatres did. It was generating every day. People handed over their money. You know, you could see the amount of money that was coming out of it, and people thought, hmm, you know, I want a share of that. And I think that's the other side to the uh, the, the the fantastic words that Shakespeare created is that underneath this was a, a financial model which. Uh, attracted some pretty um, uh, vicious fighting. Well, right. And then you've anticipated my next question, which is that we're always talking about what a business theater is, what a businessman Shakespeare must have been. And it seems that it's so easy for people who love Shakespeare to kind of lose track of the business element of the work he was he was immersed in. Yeah, I mean, I... I... <laughs> I love the words, so you know. But I, but I, but and I also you work think in it. Theater, yeah, you, yeah, yeah. But I, I do think it's interesting. And of course, a book came out a couple of years ago called Shakespeare's Money, which was looking at, at Shakespeare's earning capacity. 
And of course, when he came down to London, his father was obviously in pretty serious financial problems. And um, several people have suggested recently that Shakespeare would have come to London, probably without much financial backing. And it's interesting that St Helens had the Leather Cellars Hall, because his father was a glover. And although in London, there was a separate guild for glovers, one's got to ask oneself the question, you know, when Shakespeare came down, was he actually an established writer and actor or was he working in a kind of mixed economy where he thought well if the worst comes to the worst you know I could work as a leather worker's assistant because <laughs> presumably he learned he learned you always you know, need he, a plan b in the earth. well a plan b indeed a plan b and of course you know he must have li- you know in his teens he was still living in Stratford and presumably must have seen what his father what, what a leather working uh, workshop was like yeah well, why why do you think, though, there's s- such a, I don't know, we always put the art, or it seems like we put the art first and the commerce second in talking about Shakespeare. And it's like that with film, too. Is it because, you know, the Academy dominates Shakespeare, uh, the Shakespeare community and conversation? You know, maybe business people <laughs> would have approached Shakespeare very differently from the um, way English majors do. Yeah, I think part of the reason is that since um, Shakespeare's time, we've had the plays, we've had the poems, and so you can read them. Th- th- to be honest, the, the detailed financial data, the sort of, and also the material that's, uh, that I put in my book, is pretty inaccessible. <laughs> you know, it's reading a lot of original documents. It's like rather like constructing a 3D puzzle where a lot of the clues are missing Mm. you know it's hard work and if you're not interested in uh, the financing of theatre I think most people think well the play's the thing and I think that's a pity because I don't think looking at at this underlying uh, financial side makes Shakespeare any less interesting in I think it actually makes him in many ways more interesting because he was working in a commercial economy and you only need to talk to anybody who's working on Broadway Yes, you've got the play, you've got the lead actor, you've got the theatre. But in a sense, that's just the start of your problems. You know, it's everything that comes together to make a huge success. And I think that's why theatre fascinates people, uh, why so many people want to work in it. It's that extraordinary teamwork that you get, which produces something. But even when everything goes or appears to be going absolutely right, until the opening night, you never know. As it's, many, uh, It's a mystery. It's it's a sort of it's a sort of mystery, and as you know, many famous producers have said, if I knew what the secret of doing a successful play was, I'd be a very rich person. Even the very rich ones say that, let alone the ones who've suffered financial losses, as um, most people have at some time in their career. And I think that's the world that Shakespeare in. Shakespeare wasn't subsidised by anybody. He was moving in a world where if you got into debt, you went to prison. You often, you know, it was a very very tough environment, and you know, you had to be tough to survive and to flourish. Well, let's shift gears a bit and mm. and go the time-worn path of from talking about money to talking about religion. Uh, we'll talk about the church because that was such a big part of this parish's life, a community's life then. And it was required by law that everyone go to church in, in Shakespeare's time. So Shakespeare would have been required to attend services in St. Helens. And maybe this is a dumb question, but just because it was a law, did people really obey it? Well, first of all, there were people who wouldn't go, I mean, Catholics. Um, Strictly speaking, it would be considered rather abnormal not to go to your local parish church, because why wouldn't you? I think it's important to realise that uh, when you went to a parish church in in that period, it was a way of showing very much the social gradations of the parish. So 
the church would have been filled with um, what are called box pews and you've had to pay for them. And generally speaking, the wealthiest people were at the front near the communion table in a, in a, in a Protestant church. Um, and the poorer people would be towards the back and sort of scattered around. And right at the back of the church would be the two church wardens who were positioned at the back, A, to check who was coming uh, in, and B, to make sure you paid attention. So Shakespeare, he went to church. What do you imagine the scene was? Where where did he sit? And what did the people around him, how did they think of him or react to him? Or well, was he a famous uh, what, what, star at some point? Yeah, you know? yeah. I, well, it, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Of course, I mean, there were some pretty heavyweight Puritans in the parish, um, some pretty severe people who would probably um, have considered Shakespeare rather unsuitable company. You know, they would not have been in favour of theatre. On the other hand, I think for a lot of other people, he'd have been... Um, something of a star. I mean, he wasn't just a writer, but would have been seen as, you know, as an actor and someone that many of them would have seen on the stage. You know, the thing that I always think is rather curious is that, you know, everybody writes about, you know, how Shakespeare controlled his audience. It's rather interesting to imagine him in a situation where he would have been the audience and there were actually lots of benches um, which filled up the back and the sides of the church and would you could have probably sat there for free. So that's probably where poorer people uh, stayed. So, um, of course, one doesn't know, and this is pure speculation, but <laughs> my guess is that Shakespeare would have uh, probably had a lot of things apart from the service on his mind and probably uh, in an ideal world would have have chosen to be um, behind one of the pillars which run down the middle of the church so that he could get on with whatever project was in his mind. And <laughs> or maybe taking have... notes on the, on the, on the <laughs> or, sermon, or, or, right? Or, yeah, yeah. I mean, one of, the, the, yeah, one of the interesting things is that um, in the, all churches then had a thing called the paraphrase, which is where the paraphrases uh, of the Bible were put on. So there would have been a large table in the church with uh, improving literature, if we can put it on, on it. So, it, you know, I, you can almost imagine him sort of... Um, you know, drifting off and thinking, oh, go and pick up one of those and have a read. But I, <laughs> well, th- th- actually, th- now now we've gotten into the idea of imagining yourself into yeah, the mind yeah, of Shakespeare yeah. and the, the life of Shakespeare, which you do really well, actually, beautifully in this book, because <laughs> uh, you have these passages where you write mm. really vividly about Shakespeare yeah. being torn between Stratford-upon-Avon and, and Plague in London or, or needing to be around dynamic people. And it's, it is as if you, are, you were writing a novel about him, just for a certain portions of your book. Yeah. Tell me about your decision to, to, to do well, that, to include um, these more fiction-like passages. Yeah, passages. I mean, that goes back to the, the nature of the book, which is um, I work in a museum. I'm not in a, an academic university. And so I spend a lot of my day-to-day time thinking, how can you get general visitors interested in the subject? And so when um, Edinburgh University Press agreed to publish the book, I suggested we did it as a kind of crossover so that it's got some hardcore academic research in it. But I wanted to try and make it accessible to people who were sort of generally interested in the subject. And this is a a micro history of a tiny corner of the city where probably most readers will never go to. And I therefore felt that in a few places, what I've tried to do is evoke, almost in a reconstruction, what the parish would have been like. Because the the church is still in the same place, and in fact, large parts of the of the streetscape, in fact, survived until the 1960s when they were torn down for office buildings. I think you can make some reasonable assumptions, but I have made it very clear where these are. And also, I suppose, because I'm interested in theatre, this is a bit like the fourth wall, where 
the actors address the audience directly. So it's sort of based on a theatrical technique. And I think, uh, well, if people don't like it, um, that's their choice. But I, I, think, I think it's justified in the context of what is a mass of very, very detailed information from some pretty dry documents. But as I said, I have made those bits clear. And I think the other thing that came to me writing the book is how dependent we are now on so many specialists from really, really... Uh, areas of, of Renaissance studies, which even a few years ago, one probably wouldn't have thought about. And I've, I've benefited greatly from advice, for instance, on people who specialise um, Elizabethan medicine, which is a pretty, pretty specific subject. And I think that part of what I was trying to do in the book was sort of say, this is really just a start. At the end of it, I say, there are all these people where we, you know, I haven't been able to find out where they came from or where they ended up. And, you know, I, I, I hope it's a jumping off point for people who might be interested in doing research on Shakespeare as documents come increasingly available, you know, on the Internet. And you don't have to necessarily go into archives to study them. You can almost do it at home. So what do you conclude then as a, as a writer who's making these, uh, you know, t- taking some speculative leaps what, when it well, comes I to think- Shakespeare? I, I think the the one I might end on, because I think it's um, so interesting that um, I'm pretty certain there's something in it, which is the, the, the parish church, which was actually ne- the, ne- the next parish, St. Martin Outwich, which unfortunately it has been demolished, was literally, you know, sort of about 100 yards away from Shakespeare's lodgings. And um, it was actually known as St. Martin's by the well with two buckets. And the reason for this was the parish well was actually in the middle of the street, in the middle of Bishopsgate, and it had a uh, a well where um, as one bucket went up, the other went down. And, of course, you have that magnificent description in Richard II where he describes um, his fortunes uh, going down, his bucket full of tears. And um, it's, um, of course, there may have been other wells with two buckets, but the fact that Richard II was written at a time when Shakespeare was living in the parish adjacent to a church with such an, uh, a remarkable name, I do think is an example of where he has picked up something uh, just from walking around in his locality. But you, know, you can never be certain, but um, there are things like that. And obviously in the book, I've, I've discussed some other ones. But I'm sure that um, underlying this is the fact that, you know, Shakespeare, we've always known was a great observer of human nature, and, and but also that he took entire sections of, uh, of plays from other people. And I, I d- again, I don't think the fact that he did that makes him any less interesting. He was having to survive in a very hard commercial climate where the price of failure was um, often the debtor's prison and he was driven to succeed. Well, thank you so much. I really, really enjoyed uh, the facts and the speculation. <laughs> well, thank you. And um, it was great to talk to you. And... Um, Hope to meet up in Los Angeles sometime. Oh, that would be lovely. Or London. <laughs> or London. Jeffrey Marsh is director of the Theatre and Performances Collection of the Victoria and Albert Museum in London. His new book, Living with Shakespeare, St. Helens Parish, 1593 to 1598, was just published by Edinburgh University Press. It became available in the U.S. on May 30th, 2021. Our podcast, We'll Wander Through the Streets and Note the Qualities of People, was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern Pastor. Ben Lauer is the web producer with help from Leonor Fernandez. 
We had technical help from Andrew Feliciano and Paul Luke at Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California. If you're a fan of Shakespeare Unlimited, please leave us a positive review on Apple Podcasts. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge in the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. Thanks for listening. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.